Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We are so glad you're with us. We're a Bible-based church from Ontario, Canada, and together we're on a mission to reach people far from Christ and see them become devoted followers of Him. In today's episode, Pastor Nathan begins a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts, which documents the birth of the early church. In this first chapter, we see the disciples instructed to wait for the Holy Spirit before embarking on their mission to take the message of Jesus to the world. With that, let's turn over to Pastor Nate with Acts Part 1, entitled, What Are You Waiting For? It's been a good morning already. Uh, Thanks to our team. Today, as I just mentioned, we're actually kicking off a study in uh, the book of Acts, which is found in the New Testament. If you're you're new around here, you may not know that uh, typically here at Pathway Church, Through the course of a year, I would say that the majority, the vast majority of the sermons or messages, be it myself or someone else, that the vast majority of those messages are what we call topical sermons. And when I say that, what I mean is that we're actually asking the question, what does the Bible say about love, about relationship? Uh, For example, in the last four weeks, we just came through a message series called Winning the War in Your Mind. And we're focused specifically on the thoughts that we think. And the truths in God's word that counteract the lies and how we can actually change our thinking to line up with what God has said and actually change our lives. So we are focused on a specific subject. Now, there is another way to study the Bible. And to be honest with you, personally, I probably spend about half of my time studying the Bible topically. And the other half of the time when I'm studying personally, it's what we call exegetical study, which is a, it's a big word. Uh, but exegetical study just simply means that you're walking through a text verse by verse start to finish through a book of the Bible, you're asking questions like, what's the context? Who's the author? How does what's being said here connect with what's said over there? Truth be told, these two types of sermons actually interact all the time. So even when I'm teaching topically, I'm like, actually, here's the context. Here's who wrote it. Here's what's being said. What typically happens is even if you're doing a topical sermon, we actually end up um, doing some exegesis. And even when we're doing an exegetical sermon series, as we're going to be doing for the next 12 weeks or so, you end up running into ideas and you have to go to the rest of scripture to clarify those ideas. So really, um, we kind of end up doing both. But I'm excited over the next uh, 12 weeks or so from now until Easter, we're going to be walking through the book of Acts and we're going to be walking through sort of a half a chapter a week. We're going to try and get through about five chapters by the time we get to Easter. I'm I'm really, I'm really excited about this. Um, Again, there's, uh, you can go to the next slide here. There's a bunch of different types of book. If you're new to faith, you may not know this, but the Bible actually is a collection of 66 different documents. And some of them are history. Some of them are law. Some of them are poetry and music. Some of them are prophetic. Some of them are personal letters written, you know, from Paul or from John or from Peter or others to the church. And some of them are prophetic texts like the book of Revelation. And so in the New Testament, we have a whole assortment of these. And we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, which is primarily history. There's some teaching in there. Uh, but really, the book of Acts sort of tells us what happened for the first 30 years of the church after Jesus ascends into heaven. So let me share with you a little bit of information about the, uh, about the book itself, okay? The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four accounts of Jesus' life, followed by the book of Acts. So the, the New Testament starts with five books of history and God's new law coming through Christ, just like the Old Testament starts with the five books of Moses called the Pentateuch. So you get this really cool mirror effect happening. So for those of you who are Bible nerds, you'll be excited about that. Written between 60 and 70 AD. How do we know this? Well, we know this because um, in this account of the book of Acts, we actually find Paul imprisoned in Rome, which would have happened after 60 AD. 
And we hear no mention of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which would happen around 70 AD. So we're quite confident that what we're, what's been penned here was written about 60 or 70 AD, which is roughly 30 years or so after Jesus' resurrection. So very early on in the church. Uh, it tells us the history of the early church, and this is a really big idea. The book of Acts is actually a transitional book. Without the book of Acts, probably n- none of us would be here today. The reason for that is because the first four books of the Bible, or of the New Testament, the Gospels, they tell the story of a Jewish Messiah named Jesus, who taught about this new kingdom that was coming to the earth. But Jesus preached almost entirely to Jews. Everything he said was applied to Jews, not to Gentiles. He didn't even leave Israel and go to the Gentile nation. So if it were not for the book of Acts, which actually tells us how the, the church, which Jesus founded, transitions and is led by the spirit to go out into the rest of the world where this thing goes from just being a jewish thing to an everybody thing thank goodness and without the book of acts showing the transition from only jews to everybody we wouldn't be here and beyond that without the book of acts all these letters that paul and others wrote we wouldn't know the context for them because the book of acts actually gives us the historical context for so many of the other documents in the new testament so super 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 important i hope you can see that and so, so today, as we kind of as we kind of jump into this, um, we're going to just kind of walk um, verse by verse through it, try and take it slow. Um, so let's look at verse one and the first portion. Here's what it says: It says in the first book, O Theophilus. Now this indicates that there was a previous document written by this author, who we're going to learn about in just a second, is is Luke, and he's writing and documenting all these things for a man named Theophilus. We'll talk about him in a moment. So let's look about the author. Okay, the author is Luke. You can go to the next slide for me here. The author is Luke. And he does a two-part investigation. If you've ever read the Gospel of Luke, it begins with a note to Theophilus. And he says, I've been carefully interviewing people. I've been gathering all the data. He's got his clipboard out and he's writing all the things down. He's interviewing Mary, the mother of Jesus. What happened? Oh, we traveled to Jerusalem. or We traveled to Bethlehem because of the census. What would Christmas be without Luke? Right? So, so Luke is doing this investigation and he's sending all this information to a man named Theophilus. Interestingly, uh, Luke is not a Jew himself. And as such, he's the only author in the Bible who is not a Jew. And he pens 25% of the New Testament. Very cool. Uh, we know that Luke was a physician. Whatever that meant in the first century, it definitely means he was highly educated and very detailed. He eventually meets up and travels with Paul. So if you're reading the book of Acts, you'll notice the first 10 chapters or so are focused on Peter. And then as time progresses, all of a sudden, the rest of the book's all about Paul. And this is very likely because Luke met up with Paul and went on his missionary journeys with him and had firsthand account of many of the things of which he writes. So here's the last thing I need us to focus on. The fact that this was commissioned by a man named Theophilus. Now, we don't know much about this man historically. But in Luke's gospel, he writes, O excellent Theophilus, which was a title of of, uh, nobility of some sort. Perhaps Theophilus was a wealthy Roman who had begun to follow Jesus and wanted to know more about Jesus' story, his teachings, and then the history of the early church. So if we go uh, to the next slide, uh, we have our first passage. The first book, O Theophilus. I I don't want to rush past this because, you know, when you open a a book, you can start to read and you just kind of glance over this. You're like, oh, Theophilus guy. I want you to consider this. It's very likely many historians believe that Theophilus bankrolled or commissioned 
Luke to do his work. So he's paying for Luke to travel to all these places. He's perhaps paying for Luke's expenses as he's documenting all of his gospel of Luke and then commissions him to do a second work all about the history of the early church. And, and this is where I think that we could preach for a moment. I think it's really fascinating that in the church, there are always many different types of people who contribute different things. For example, when we read the book of Acts, and we're going to get through it uh, eventually, we have Peter and we have Paul. These two guys emerge as leaders. They are standing on stages. They're preaching. They're getting beaten. They're getting arrested. Like Everyone's talking about them. But behind the leaders in the early church are people like Luke. Luke is a detail guy. And guess what? The church needs detailed people. We need somebody to make a list. Somebody has to organize details. And we have a guy like Luke, okay, who's following Paul around. And he's doing all this incredible ministry and doing miracles. And he's writing it all down. And if he didn't, we'd have no account of it. And then, not only do you have the, the front stage person and the person behind the scenes who's organizing things, you have people like Theophilus. We'll call him Theo. And what does Theo do? He's, he's taking his resources and he's funding the gospel and funding the work of the kingdom. And you know what? In a church like ours, there's people that do all those three things. There are people who are out in the front leading. There are people who are organizing behind the scenes. And we have incredible people in this church, and you'll never, you'll never know their names, who give amazing and massive amounts of money to help make all of what we do possible. And we need everybody. Does that make sense? See how we can just miss that when we, when we read it through too quickly. So in the first book, O Theophilus, he continues, I have dealt with all that Jesus, let's all say this together, began to do and teach. He doesn't say, I wrote in my first book, the Gospel of Luke, the stuff Jesus did. He says the stuff he began to do. In reality, the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of Jesus. Because this whole book is going to be about Jesus' continued work through his, his disciples and through the early church. So he says, all that he began to do and teach. Uh, years ago, I heard a preacher say um, that the book of Acts ends abruptly. And if you go to the last chapter, you find it basically says, Paul's in jail, people are coming to see him, the church is growing, and that's just kind of ends. And I heard this preacher say, the reason why it ends so abruptly is because it's still being written. Because we're the church, and we're still taking his message out into the world. We're still uh, demonstrating the love of God to our neighbors, and it continues. And so this thing is not as far from over. It's far from over. He continues to say this. He says, my first uh, letter, the Gospel of Luke, if you can go to the next slide for me. He says, I recorded everything until the day when he was taken up. And that's where Luke, Luke is going to pick up in Acts. He's going to, Jesus is ascending to heaven. We just read about it. He was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, he continues. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. This is really important. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke is really, really, really cautious here. He wants Theophilus and us to know that Jesus didn't just appear to his disciples once. It wasn't like his grave was robbed and his body was gone and then they thought they saw him in a crowd. Or they thought they saw Jesus' doppelganger you know, somewhere. It wasn't like that. They literally saw Jesus on numerous occasions. They walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They, they saw him in the upper room. They touched the nail prints in his hands. They had breakfast with him on the beach. They watched him eat. For 40 days, Jesus appeared to them over and over again, teaching them, preparing them. So, like, this is, this is kind of a big deal. And this actually explains the incredible transition in the disciples. Because after his death, they are in hiding. 
And even after his grave is empty, they go back to fishing. Because they just, they don't believe it. And so, because they spend time with the resurrected Jesus, all of a sudden, when we get into the book of Acts, you see disciples that emerge with this boldness. A willingness to die for their faith that was never there before. And the reason why they weren't afraid to die is because they had just met and spent time with their Messiah who had come back from dead and said, it's not the end. They go forward confidently because death is not scary for them anymore. They have just spent time with a resurrected Jesus. I wonder sometimes if you and I truly meet and spend time with a resurrected Jesus, whether we wouldn't have more boldness and confidence. Years ago, uh, when I was a little baby, like newborn, my mother went to a tent meeting, and, and she, was, she was raised in a Catholic home, very nominal. Uh, she wasn't really practicing or anything, but she went to this tent meeting and heard someone talk about Jesus in a personal way. She went to the front and committed her life to Jesus, prayed a prayer, and she came home, and my, my father uh, has told me on numerous occasions, he said, she was such a different person, I didn't know her anymore. He's like, all of a sudden my wife is, is up reading her Bible. Like, who does that? And she's praying and crying all the time. And he literally said, if I don't get what she's got, I don't think this thing's going to work anymore. She was changed and transformed. And I wonder if we meet a resurrected Jesus, if we get to know him, uh, if we wouldn't be radically transformed as well. You guys with me? All right, let's go on to verse 4. It says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Now we know... That when Jesus, in the end of Matthew, he's standing on the mountain with the disciples and he tells them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? So he's sending them out. But he also tells them not to depart. He says, I'm sending you out, but I want you to wait. And the question we want to ask today is, what exactly were they waiting for? What were the disciples waiting for? And the answer is given in the, next, in the next passage. He says that they are to wait for the promise of the Father, something he had referred to earlier in the Gospels, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, let me take a few moments to explain. Baptism, which Todd mentioned, we're going to have one uh, about a month from now here. Baptism is an immersion in water. And for the Jewish people, it signified a transition. If somebody was not a Jew and they began to follow the Jewish faith, they would get baptized. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a symbol of transition. And when John the Baptist was baptizing people in the River Jordan, he was baptizing them as a, a sign of, of repentance of their sins and turning and preparing their hearts for the coming Messiah. That's what John's baptism was all about. But Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you. There's going to be a different transition And this transition is going to be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the disciples are probably going, what exactly is this all about? I I should take a moment to to point out the fact that we, as a church, this is a a really key idea. We believe in a triune God. Okay, and I wish this would be a whole message series to to sort show you why we believe in a triune God and all the passages that associate it with. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You guys have heard of that? It's not, not a shock to anybody. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I love, uh, with the Gospel Coalition, um, read this statement I thought would be really helpful to share. It says this, Salvation is purposed by the Father, accomplished by the Son through His death and resurrection, and applied by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the acting agent in your life. That if you're here today and you sense God speaking to you, that's actually the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is here in this place, 
and who is speaking and leading. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and lead us and guide us. He would explain the scriptures. He would draw us to God and transform our hearts. And there's this interesting idea because we see the Holy Spirit at work throughout the Bible. If you go to the next one, uh, we see the Holy Spirit at work. And in the Old Testament, okay, so in the first 39 books of the Bible, we have kind of three key people upon whom the Holy Spirit comes to rest. First, we see kings, we see priests, and we see prophets. These, these are three specific roles that, are, that we find in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit would descend upon the priests as they were ministering in the temple. And, and all these cool things would happen. And then the prophets, the Spirit would come down upon the prophets. It would rest upon them. And they would prophesy and speak all these words. And then the Holy Spirit would also come down and rest upon kings. For example, when David was anointed as a young man. And Samuel poured the oil over his head. The scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon David. So when David ran out to the battleground to take on Goliath, and he had this incredible confidence in God, it wasn't just David being a really great Christian. It was the Spirit of God acting through David. The Spirit came to descend upon him, which is why he was able to do many of the things he did. And so we have the Spirit descending on individuals throughout the Old Testament. But see, here's what's really interesting, is that the Scriptures actually foretell a moment in time When the Spirit would not just descend upon people temporarily, but that the Spirit would come to live within each and every person. That's what Jesus is talking about, okay? In Ezekiel chapter 36, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon him and he wrote these words. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We don't obey God's commands and love God because we try hard. We obey his commands and love God because it's his spirit enabling us and drawing us to do it. And literally God through the prophet Ezekiel says there's coming a day when my spirit isn't going to just descend upon a few special people here and there. But my spirit's going to come to live in every person who calls upon the name of my son. Isn't that cool? And so Jesus is like, don't go anywhere. Without the Holy Spirit. Don't go anywhere until this work of transformation happens within you. Now, here's a big idea that we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. Okay, Uh, If you throw it up, cessationism versus continuationism. Nice, eh? In fact, um, in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see the apostles in the upper room and all those that were with them. And the Spirit descends and there's tongues of fire and they all speak in tongues. And I asked the staff, I was like, hey guys, does anyone want to preach on Acts chapter 2? And nobody put up their hand. So, so I'll be doing that in a couple of weeks. But let me, just, let me just point to this. Okay, just in case you're wondering what we're talking about when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. These are two ideas that are embraced within the church. And my guess is that there's people in this room, people listening online, who embrace one or the other. Or maybe some of you just aren't sure. Cessationism, cessationism say that ten times fast. Uh, literally all that means is, These Christians who believe that the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in the early church and they were able to preach, uh, they did prophecy, they did miracles, signs and wonders, speaking in tongues, all of these things, they go, all of that stopped with the apostles. It ceased. That's why it's called cessationism. Okay? Pretty easy. Other Christians believe in continuationism, which is simply that the same Holy Spirit that descended on the apostles descends and lives within each of us. Which means that we can prophesy, we can speak in tongues, we can do miracles, healing, and all those things. There's going to be people in our room that, that 
that are on either side of the camp. And honestly, it doesn't bother me that much. As long as we all understand, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that makes everything we do possible. And we must agree on that, and we must understand that. And if you don't believe in healing, fine, as long as you're okay with other people who do. Okay, because people are going to view this in different ways, and we'll talk more about it in the future. Can I just lay that out for you now so that we're all on the same page? So let's continue. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, so Jesus says, don't go, Holy Spirit's coming. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Does that not seem odd to you? Hey, the Holy Spirit's coming, don't go anywhere. Hey, is this the time the kingdom... Seems odd, seems like a change of direction, but it actually isn't, and here's why. In the Old Testament, the prophets always spoke about a time when the Spirit would come, and immediately following that, there would be a time when the Messiah would restore all things. For example, in uh, the book of Joel, chapter 2, and we know the disciples were thinking about this because Peter's going to quote it in his sermon in a couple of weeks when we get there, and Joel chapter 2 says this, that in the last days, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all all flesh, not priests, kings, prophets, everybody. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. A couple verses later, it literally says that the Messiah will establish his kingdom, bring justice to the world, and, and kind of wrap up all things. And so the disciples, when they hear Jesus say the Spirit's coming, they're like, it's the end, we're ready. But Jesus responds to them and he says this, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. By the way, anytime the disciples ask Jesus, when is the end coming? When are you returning? When is heaven descending to earth? He always answers the same way. Not for you to know. Which bothers a lot of us, especially those of us who like details and who want to know the answer to everything. Jesus is like, you know, you're actually not going to know. Now, I want to encourage you. It's a really good idea to read prophetic texts like Daniel, the book of Revelation, and others. It's when the disciples asked Jesus, what are the signs of the end of the age? Jesus gave them some things that they could look for. But I do want to challenge all of you that we can, we can get a little silly, okay, when all we're focusing on is the signs of the end times. Because here's why. We have signs that we're to know about and we're to look for, but we're not to spend all of our time watching the news, I'm not against watching the news, but if we're spending all of our time watching the news, trying to see when these signs are fulfilled, we're going to end up living our lives in a tizzy, okay? A hundred years ago, if you were a Christian, and I'm assuming none of us were alive a hundred years ago, but if you, a hundred or more years ago, if you were a Christian, you were alive and you were looking for the Antichrist. The Antichrist is this figure in the book of Revelation who's going to oppose the church, bring kind of one world government rule and do all kinds of catastrophic things. And if you were around at the turn of the last century, you would have thought it was Stalin. In the 1940s, you would have been 100% confident it was Adolf Hitler. I mean, Europe was on fire. The book of Revelation actually predicts a great army from the east meeting up with a great army from the west, like World War I, World War II. If you were alive at that time watching those things happen, would you not have been convinced that, like, it's here. Jesus is returning any moment. That's 80, 90 years ago. Yes. And if you progress through history, you get to, you know, then it's the Cold War. Oh, it's the East and the West. And oh, Jesus is coming. And you're getting all excited. And then barcodes came out and it was like, oh, the sign of the beast. And 
And, and, and on and on and on and on it goes. Now you could look and say, oh, it's the, you know, it's the Chinese Communist Republic, Xi Jinping, that's, that's the Antichrist. This is how it's going to happen. Or no, oh, now it's Putin. A few years ago, it was Donald Trump. And then someone said it was Biden. Like, it's just everybody just like, it's just, it's so easy to get caught up in all these things, right? One world government, how's that going to happen? 20 years ago, uh, when 9-11 happened, I'm like, oh, security is the thing that's going to bring about the one world government. And then the European Union formed, like, like it was like 10 countries, and they had one, one, uh, one currency, which it's not really doing so great. But I thought, oh, this is the start of it. And then when the pandemic happened, I'm like, oh, it's passport, it's vaccine certificates. That's how they're going to accomplish it. And now I'm kind of leaning to the whole like environmental issues. Like we're all going to have to band together to save the planet. So I don't know how it's going to happen, but my point is simply this. We can spend all our time watching the news, freaking out, reading the latest book. But Jesus says, you're not going to know the time. And he goes on to say this, okay? So he says, instead of staring at the clouds, wondering what's going to happen next, he says, you will, let's say it together, receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is what Jesus wants us to do right here, to be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is like, I got a mission for you i got a job for you to do. I want you to take this message and to bring it to the world. And when he had said these things, he's given them their marching orders. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? So they're watching Jesus leave. He disappears into the clouds, but they're still... I wouldn't stop looking, would you? He's going to appear again. He's coming back. He said he was coming back. Maybe he's coming back right now. They would have stood there all week. But the angels appear and they're like, what are you waiting for? It's the title of my message, by the way. What are you waiting for? Jesus says, here's your marching orders. Here's the provision. The spirit is going to come and empower you. Go to Jerusalem and get ready to roll. What are you waiting for? The angels say this, and this is where we'll end. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. Jesus will return and he'll come back in the same way which he went. Jesus sends his church out on mission. And to my knowledge, Jesus has not returned yet. The mission he sent his disciples out still stands. That we're still to be witnesses of a resurrected Jesus. That we're to share Here's the thing. I feel like sometimes Christians, we, we want to convince everybody of our doctrine, our belief, our lifestyle. That's not what Jesus called them to do. He called them to be witnesses. And this is something very different. When you, when you tell somebody, hey, here is what Jesus has done for me. Here is how I have been changed by him. That is way better than here's why what you believe is wrong. <laughs> be witnesses. And here's the incredible thing. When we go out and share our story of what God has done in our life, it's actually the Holy Spirit that touches and changes people's lives. I'm up here talking. I'm reading Bible verses. I'm sharing illustrations. But if anyone here today is drawn to follow Jesus, it's not because of my convincing words. It's because his spirit is here and draws people. One of the things the Holy Spirit always does, because we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, because he's like the, the, the main character in this book. But one of the things the Holy Spirit always does is points people to Jesus. 
And if you're talking about the Holy Spirit and you're not talking about Jesus, there's something wrong. You're talking about something else. Because the Holy Spirit is always lifting up Jesus, pointing to Jesus. And that's what we're to do. We're just to tell people about Jesus. And as we do, the Spirit will guide us and empower us. And and He does the work. He's the one that changes hearts, which is awesome. So um, I'm reminded, too, that, you know, the disciples are kind of caught staring into the clouds and the angels are essentially saying what are you what are you looking at what are you what are you waiting for and i often wonder what is the church waiting for because jesus isn't coming back looking for a bunch of christians sitting in a bus stop going where are you when are you coming he's coming back looking for those who are at work in his field in matthew 24 25 when he talks about the end times he actually gives a, a parable a parable of the talents and there's these different servants and they all have different amounts different things Different uh, amounts that they have uh, of money. He uses money in that case. But in the same way, you and I all have something to contribute to this community, to our city, to the world. And each of us has to do something with it. And while he's gone away, they're to do something with it. And they're investing his resources and his talents and and all of this. And when he comes back, he's looking that we've been hard at work doing something with it. And that's what he's returning looking for. So it's great. I want to encourage you to study prophecy and study the end times is great, but you ought to be working and we ought to be on mission, sharing our faith, sharing the love of God with the world. And again, it's not about us. It's about him. It's his love by his spirit going out to the world. So let's finish with this really practical question. What are you waiting for? We know what the disciples are waiting for. What are you waiting for? I would say that if you've never put your trust in Jesus, today would be about as good a day as ever. It's amazing and sometimes you can grow up in church or you can attend church for six months and you're hearing all this stuff and you sense the spirit of God drawing you, you just won't take the step to say, I believe. Believe in Jesus. And by the way, the next step after believing in Jesus, as we're going to see through the book of Acts, is getting baptized. And when we get baptized in water, it's not preparing our hearts for the Messiah. We get baptized pointing back to the fact that God by his spirit has done something in us. And we are alive in Christ. So we're actually, they got baptized with John looking forward to Jesus. We get baptized looking back and saying, look what he's done in my heart. So I'll encourage you to believe and be baptized. Secondly, receive the Holy Spirit. Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. We're going to talk about it in a couple weeks. Here's one thing I can tell you though. Some of you are like, I received the Holy Spirit 26 years ago. When we get into the book of Acts, what you're going to see, at least three times Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the other disciples. So receiving the Holy Spirit should be a constant and consistent thing. Holy Spirit, come and work in my life. Holy Spirit, speak to me. We invite him into our life. So receive the Holy Spirit. Doesn't have to be weird. Receive him. That's your next step. What are you waiting for? Next, we could say this. uh, Share your witness boldly. As I said before, it's not about convincing everyone that you're right. It's about sharing with them what God has done in your life and heart. And this goes way further than anything else. Here's what Jesus has done and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Lastly, I would say this. Get to work. What are you waiting for? Serve somebody. Help somebody. When Jesus returns to judge, he's actually going to be like, hey, when you clothed somebody, you clothed me. When you gave somebody a drink of water, you did it to me. When you served, when you gave, when you shared love with anybody, you did it unto me. We're supposed to be doing something, not just sitting around looking for the end. So what are you, what are you waiting for? The disciples went to Jerusalem. We're going to read about this in the coming weeks. And, uh, and they waited and the Holy Spirit descends and then they get sent out on this mission, which is absolutely incredible. We're going to look at all that. But my question today is, what are you 
What are you waiting for? Believe. Get baptized. Receive the Spirit. Share your faith. Serve. Love. Give. Do something. Don't just sit around. God gives us His Spirit so that we can take His love, His light, His truth to the world around us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for every person listening today. And as we open up your, your word and we, we walk through these verses, I pray that your spirit would stir our hearts, that you would draw us to Jesus, that you would point us to the, to the one who has saved our souls, and that we would leave this place uh, full of your boldness and confidence. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has never trusted in Jesus, I pray that you would draw their heart to do so. To say, Lord, I, I believe and I receive you into my life. If there's anyone here today who, who just says, I need the Holy Spirit in my life. Just say, I receive you, Holy Spirit. And just invite him to come in and begin to work in your life in a new and fresh way. Help us to be a church that isn't just staring at the sky, but that is on mission. That is loving and serving others. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, that's it from us. Thank you so much for joining. Please stay connected with us. Be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's Pathway Church PTBO. Hey, God is at work in this world, and we feel so blessed that we get to be a part of what he is doing. Have a great day wherever you're at, and we hope to see you soon.